Thank you to our music team. Appreciate you guys serving us so well every week. Let me ask you please to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, this morning we're going to look at verses 18 to 22. As we continue our worship of the Lord and we continue the study of the gospel according to Mark, we're in the middle now of third illustration of the section where Mark particularly highlights the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. We've so far seen that conflict begin by Jesus' pronouncement of the forgiveness of the paralytic sins and then his verification of that by raising him up and sending him home, walking. We see then that that next confrontation we saw last week when uh, Jesus was confronted by the scribes of the Pharisees because not only had he called a, a tax collector to follow him as a disciple, But he was making it his practice to actually sit and eat a meal with sinners and tax collectors. And now we see here that conflict continue. The scene shifts, but the drama continues on as Mark highlights for us and puts the spotlight on this particular conflict. He highlights the failure of Jesus' disciples to fast, which then prompts this conflict yet again, which really illustrates for us the way of man versus the way of God. We learn that Jesus did not come to the world to fit in as one option among many others or as an add-on to one's life, but that Jesus Christ, in fact, is life itself. So would you please follow along with me then as I read Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples fast and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does... The patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's pray together. Father, as we approach your word now, we pray that you would grant us your grace to understand. We ask that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law. As we look specifically at this confrontation of Jesus and as we look at the battle of the way of man versus the way of God, we pray, O God, that you would show us again and again and again. And even perhaps if someone needs it for the very first time, that your way is best. We certainly know that yours is the only way. We ask that you would instill that conviction in us even more, but we pray, God, that you would also show us that not only is your way the only way, but your way is the most beautiful. The way of grace far outseeds the way of works. Lord, I pray that if we have in any way heaped upon ourselves works, 
If there is any element that we think that our works will earn us any type of righteous standing with you, and we pray that the light of your word would shine on that sin and you would drive it from our hearts. We pray, O oh God, that if anyone has not yet realized your grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, the saving reality that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves, Jesus has finished the work. And he delights to save sinners. We pray, God, that you would reveal that to us, that you would strengthen us with that truth, and that you would send us out with that truth always resonating in our hearts. That it would sink down deep into our bones so that truly the joy of the Lord would be our strength. We see as we experience life in a fallen world that there are times for mourning and fasting. There are difficulties. But we know that Jesus will come again one day. And that we who are in him will be his guests at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We long for that day, Lord. But until then, remind us that it is true. It is coming. Yet there is work to do so that more would be invited to that very same event. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say together with one voice, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the days of Jesus, there were three practices that were known as sort of the three pillars of godliness. Three things that if you were to be taken seriously as a follower of God, a pursuer of righteousness, three things that needed to be in your life if other people were to believe that you really longed for God. Jesus highlights those three things for us in the Sermon on the Mount. One of them gets highlighted here. Almsgiving or giving to the poor was seen as a practice, one of the three pillars of godliness. Prayer was seen as one of the things that you needed to do if you were to be taken seriously as a godly person. And then there was fasting. Fasting, the practice of abstaining from food in those days, typically abstaining from food from sunup to sundown, like Muslims do during Ramadan. Fasting, the abstinence from food to show that the one who was practicing fasting depended more on God than they did on food. That was the heart intent, at least. But in the days of Jesus, he had lived, or rather much time had occurred from the writing of God's law up until this point. You had major events, for instance, such as the exile that really reoriented and changed and reshaped the practice of Israel's religion. So that you could say it was really no longer biblical Judaism, but rather it was Biblical Judaism with the law of man attached to it. And we know that anytime you dilute the word of God, the pure truth of God, with the rules and the laws of man, what you end up with is entirely corrupted. 
This is the context that Jesus lived in. This is the context that this question about fasting arose from. We see, first of all, in verse 18, the question is asked to them from the disciples, or from rather people that Mark highlights for us. Matthew tells us they were John's disciples who asked the question. Luke tells us they were the disciples of the Pharisees who asked the question. Mark just tells us it was people who asked the question. The question is asked, and then it gives Jesus, as he so often does, takes these opportunities to teach several key lessons about not only his ministry, but his actual identity. You remember that the gospel of Mark began with Jesus' preaching. The pronouncement, not just that you must repent and believe in the gospel, but before that, that the time was fulfilled. And that in the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God is at hand. That was a revolutionary pronouncement. And yet many did not get it. So as the question is asked, it then gives Jesus an opportunity to teach at least two lessons to us this morning. There are lessons that pertain to his identity and to his ministry. There are lessons that teach us about the reality that in the presence of Jesus, there is fullness of joy. And they teach us the reality that in Jesus, he has come not to patch up the old, but to make all things new. And this is our outline then as we approach this particular controversy, the way of man versus the way of God, this battle between the religious leaders and Jesus himself. So first of all, we see then in verses 18 to 20, The reality that in Jesus, there is every reason for joy. In Jesus, there is every reason for joy. Verse 18 says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. So we have the regular ongoing practice of the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees. And then the question is asked. People came and said to him, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. It was a valid question for the day. After all, not only was it a common observance to fast, a common practice to fast, but the Pharisees had taken it so far as to observe two fasts every week. God himself had only required in his word, in his law, one day of fasting for the entire year. The Day of Atonement was the one and only prescription, the one and only time that the Jews had the command of God that they must fast on that day as they mourned their sins and they celebrated the atonement of God. However, we see various expressions in the Old Testament where people are fasting and we see at During and after the exile of Israel, we see it in uh, Esther 9.31 and Zechariah 8.19, that the religious practice of Israel had deviated and, and added onto the word of God so that now in those days, it was common to have five days of fasting throughout the year. How many days of fasting did God prescribe? One. 
What is man always prone to do in his natural self-righteousness? Heap upon himself and others more law. Not realizing that doing that is to spurn God's grace completely. It is to say that, God, what you have given to us is not enough. We're going to show you how good we are. Watch this. And so not only did they practice five days of fasting, I mentioned to you already that the Pharisees added fasting, the practice of fasting twice a week, every Monday and every Thursday. But in addition to that, we see a regular practice throughout the Old Testament of fasting itself being observed as an act of self-denial, sometimes as an expression of deep, intense mourning. You think of David fasting over the death of his son, for instance, and sometimes over an expression of deep, intense uh, sorrow and repentance over not only personal sins, but the sins of all the people of Israel. So the point here is that fasting itself is not bad necessarily. In and of itself, it's not evil inherently. But what was evil was the practice that had come to be observed that you had better fast or else God does not take you seriously and neither should anyone else. Why do the people come and ask Jesus why his disciples don't fast? Because Jesus shows up and in their minds there's this brand new movement happening. There were several movements, several groups within the nation of Israel. You had the Zealots, You had the Essenes who prescribed to, the Zealots were the the political party. We need to slaughter Rome and assassinate them. The the Essenes were the, the abstain from the world party. We move out into the middle of nowhere so that no one else's sin can touch us. You had the Pharisees who actually Jesus was most like, though obviously there were some differences as we see based on the confrontations that happened. So you had these various religious practices within the, uh, the, the faith, the religion of, of Judaism itself. And now all of a sudden, there's this man who has come. And not only does he cast out demons by simply speaking to them, not only does he heal people by simply touching them, but he claims to actually forgive sin. And not only does he claim to actually forgive sin, but his teaching is teaching like they had never heard before. His teaching carried with it an authority. An authority that let the people know who was hearing it, something is different about this man. And so if that were the case, as they look at Jesus then through the lenses of their culture... Stuck to that lens was the practice of fasting. And so they see Jesus and his disciples and they don't see fasting. And everything that they've ever been taught says that if you don't fast, you're not godly. If you don't fast, you're not serious about the Lord. And so they come to Jesus with this question and they ask him, why don't your disciples fast? It's a good question. It's a controversial question. It was a question that was designed to to sort of try to stick it to Jesus. But just like all the other questions asked to Jesus, it was a softball question for him. 
Little did they know, they put the ball on the tee. I'm, I'm mixing my metaphors, go with me. And he hit it. In yet another profound, unimaginable way. So they have this question, and then Jesus gives them the answer, beginning in verse 19. And the answer is designed to teach them the very reality that in Jesus, there is every reason for joy. Rather than giving them a direct answer, Jesus gives them a story, an illustration, so that it would be crystal clear to them not only the the inappropriateness of his disciples fasting, but also... It would be crystal clear to those who have the ears of faith to hear traces of what the Old Testament proclaimed. That Yahweh himself was the husband of his people, his bride. And so Jesus answers in verse 20, the days will come, or rather verse 19, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The illustration is not lost on us, though it's much bigger to the audience that Jesus spoke to. Imagine yourself, or just think of the last time you went to a wedding. You go to the wedding, and at the wedding you have the ceremony, and most often after you you have the ceremony, you have the reception. And at the reception... You have food, the best part of which is cake, of course, but you always have food. And sometimes it's it's snacks and hors d'oeuvres, depending on the timing of the wedding. Other times it's a full-out feast. The last wedding we went to a few months ago was a feast. It was good. I'm just saying, there was no fasting happening there. Imagine you go to the wedding... And the bridegroom himself welcomes you and says, welcome. Welcome to the greatest day of my life when I get to marry my bride. We've prepared a meal for you. You're our guest. Sit, eat, enjoy. People will come around and serve you. There is plenty more. Have all that you want. And you reply to the smiling face of the bridegroom, no thanks, I'm fasting. That very smugness embodies the thinking of the Pharisees. The very inappropriate reality of fasting at a wedding celebration illustrates the inappropriate nature for the disciples of Jesus to fast while he was with them. It was a party. It was a celebration. It was a time of joy. Because Emmanuel had come. God took on flesh to be with his creation. And to proclaim a gospel of salvation. That there was no way they could ever dream of saving themselves. That their sins were far too great against God. 
But out of the overflow of the loving, compassionate heart of God, he sent his son. So that while there was no way for man to save himself, God would save man by himself. Not even the disciples got that just yet. But we do. We do. And so Jesus gives them that story, that picture, the reality that they, they can't fast as long as the bridegroom is with them. Not only would it be inappropriate entirely, but it would be impossible for them. Sometimes I love to imagine what it would be like, what it will be like to be in the physical presence of Jesus. We're in the spiritual presence of Jesus. He's here. But to look him in the face, to hug him, to hear his voice, to see his disposition toward me. This is what the disciples experienced. The face of love itself had come. Joy itself had come. Life itself was there. Jesus must have been the life of the party everywhere he went. You know what it's like to have those people in your life that you just love being around. They're the type of people that just have an infectious personality. They light up any room. Every time they come, everybody's saying, oh, so-and-so's here. Now we can get the party started. That would have been the presence of Jesus. Who knew that best? See last week's passage, tax collectors and sinners. The people that were rejected by everyone else. The people that everyone else wanted nothing to do with, those were the people that Jesus wanted everything to do with. And aren't you so thankful? What would it be like to be in the presence of Jesus Christ? It would have been tremendously joyful. And I can tell you this, it will one day also be just as joyful. Not only does Jesus' wedding illustration highlight the point of the inappropriate nature of fasting in his physical presence, it was impossible for his disciples to fast in his presence while he was with them. It teaches us something even better. And it teaches us the reason, the deeper reason, why it would be inappropriate for his disciples to fast. Why Jesus brings joy. It is unfamiliar entirely to the Old Testament to equate to the Messiah bridegroom language. In other words, the Old Testament never calls the Messiah a husband. Rather, the Old Testament calls Yahweh himself a husband. They didn't know it, but as we read it with the eyes of faith and hear it with the ears of faith, we can see it. Isaiah 54, 5 to 8 says, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. 
For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And again, Isaiah 62, verses 4 and 5, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her. And your land married, for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. God speaks this way to a future nation of Israel, but the reality is that in the church of Jesus Christ, by faith in Jesus Christ, Gentiles are brought into that reality. So when Jesus says, uh, speaks about the bridegroom, he's not just telling a compelling story. He's making an exclusive and authoritative claim about his identity. He is Emmanuel, God with us. We understand the exclusivity of the Lord Jesus Christ. We understand and we proclaim and we stand on and live by the reality that there is one and only one way to God, Jesus Christ. I think we do well at proclaiming that, at at living in the conviction of that reality. What I want us to also understand is that there is more than we can do. We stand on the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we don't just stand We proclaim the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. There is only one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. But brothers and sisters, at the very same time, we proclaim the beauty of Jesus Christ. He is the only way, and in light of every other way that is posited by man, he is the best way. There is no comparison to Jesus Christ. We proclaim that Jesus Christ is the only way to God and we show people from the Bible why he is the best way compared to every other way. We must show them why the grace of God in Jesus Christ is so much better than the exhausting efforts of man to work his way to God. And isn't that most likely why you're here? Because somehow, in some way, at some particular time, whatever it looked like for you, you realized that what you were trying to do was simply not working. It satisfies me for a moment, maybe a week, maybe two weeks, maybe a year. But the reality is, I always have to turn back to whatever my vice is. Because my pursuit, my own personal pursuit of God is nothing more than an emotional roller coaster. And as we then proclaim the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and we say, my friend, there is only one way to God. 
and it's Jesus Christ. Rather than getting into an argument with them about how they're wrong and we're right, isn't it so much better to open our Bibles and to say, hey, can I just read to you what Jesus says? Can I show you what God has said is coming? You ever been to a wedding before? Yeah, I've been to a wedding. Okay, good. Did you know that God himself promises to be a husband to his people? You've seen a lot of bad marriages, of course. But what type of marriage would God have? God, perfect in everything he does, loving. What type of marriage would God have? That's the type of relationship that you can have with him through faith in Jesus Christ. You see how that's standing on the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, but also showing the beauty of Jesus Christ? It works a whole lot better than, you're wrong. Jesus is the only way. Get out of here. It's probably not going to be so popular. It's true, is it not? It's just not very salty. And the Christian's words are to always be seasoned with salt. And so we need to show the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and we need to show the beauty of Jesus Christ that no one compares to Jesus Christ. That when Psalm 16 tells us that in the the presence of God there is fullness of joy, God has come to bring that fullness of joy in Jesus Christ. And not only did his disciples experience that in his day, but his disciples will one day experience that again in a time yet to come. Revelation 19, 6 to 9 speaks of that day. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage supper of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. My friend, I want you to know today, this is your invitation to that marriage supper. Right now, God himself is inviting you through faith in Jesus Christ to RSVP for that day, that day of pure joy, pure celebration as Jesus Christ calls his church to himself. So I ask you, will you be there? This is not an invitation that you can throw in the trash. This is not an invitation to put in the stack of papers that you mean to get to one day. This is an invitation that must be answered right here, right now. Stop your self-effort. It doesn't work. Cling to Jesus Christ by faith so that you, like these disciples, could have pure and true joy.
The reality is, it wouldn't only be a time of joy. Jesus says in verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in that day. There will be a day of fasting. In this time, that day of fasting was marked, first of all, by the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. You see, while he was with them, it was inappropriate for them to fast. But Jesus makes it crystal clear that there would be a a day coming when he would be taken away from them. If there was going to be joy then, if there will be joy in the future, then this day of mourning, this day of fasting would be necessary. Because it would be the day when Jesus would be able to seal his words that your sins are forgiven. We understand that the road to God is marked by the blood of Jesus Christ. That if there's going to be forgiveness, then those sins that are to be forgiven must be paid for. And this is the very thing Jesus came to do. And so then, even as we wait that in-between time, when, when once the physical presence of Jesus was with his people, and in the future the physical presence of Jesus will be again with his people, we wait in that in-between time, and it's a time mixed with joyful celebration and mournful fasting. But the reality is, if there will be any celebration at all, it will be most especially because our sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ. And so we see, first of all, then, that in Jesus, there is every reason for joy. And then secondly, we see that in Jesus, all things are being made new. In Jesus, all things are are being made new. As the conversation continues, the stories continue to unfold, Jesus now moves to two different illustrations that not only prove his point that he has just made, but also then begin to expand that point to to make it even greater, even bigger than what he has just said. He gives them two illustrations. The first one in verse 21 is about an unshrunk piece of cloth being sewn onto an old garment. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Jesus uses a principle from household practices. He says that if you have a garment that's old and worn out, and it develops a hole in it somewhere, You don't take a new piece of clothing and cut it out to fit the patch and patch it on. Because if you do that, then when you wash that old garment, that new cloth gets wet and therefore begins to shrink and it tears away from the old garment. And now you've got a bigger problem than you had in the first place. Likely they were confused by this. But Isaiah 43 told us exactly what he's talking about. Jesus is saying he has not come to patch up Judaism. Jesus has come to fulfill and establish a new covenant. Jesus has not come to perpetuate man's ongoing pursuit of self-righteousness, but to eradicate it altogether. He has come to show that there is one and only one way to God and that way is marked by grace through him. 
In case they didn't get that, he tells them another one. Verse 22, he says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. In those days, they put wine into old, uh, into leather skins, animal hides that they had uh, crafted for this very purpose. Usually, at least from what the books tell you, they would take something like a goat or something like that. They would skin it and do their best to preserve the hide. They would cut it off at the legs and at the neck and they would sew together the legs and they would leave the neck open, leaving them a nice open area to pour wine in and out of. They would pour it in. I know it sounds kind of gross, but they did all the proper procedures to you know, dry it out and everything. Yeah, it wasn't like fresh animal hide. They would pour it into the opening where the neck was and they would seal it up and then that would be there. They would allow the wine then to ferment and when it was ready, they would take it out and they would drink it. If they were to put new wine into old wineskins, wineskins that had already gone through the fermentation process with the release of the gases from the wine, wineskins that were already stretched to max capacity, they were to put new wine into those old wineskins, it would stretch them farther so that they would burst. The wineskins had been stretched out to their max capacity. They were not good for new wine anymore. You had to put new wine into new wineskins. Wineskins, leather that was capable of stretching with the expansion of the gases inside of the skins themselves. These were all things the cloth illustration, the wineskin illustration, these were all things taken from their everyday life. They knew what he was talking about. Or did they? They knew what it was to take proper care of clothing and to take proper care of wineskins. But what they failed to realize was that these illustrations pointed them to a bigger and greater reality. That what Jesus was coming, that, that Jesus' coming was to do something brand new. It was foretold by God. We read it in Isaiah 53, for instance. It was foretold by God. It was not to abolish the law of God, but to fulfill the law of God. The problem in those days was that the law of God had been replaced by the law of man. And it was under the the guise of being the law of God. If you really want to follow God, then you better fast. Perhaps some of you have heard that in your experiences. I'm thinking of experiences myself. If you're really serious about the Lord, you'll fast. Now the reality is, fasting is a good, appropriate spiritual discipline. But not to gain some type of favor with God. You see, everything they did was to gain some type of favor with God. Yet what Jesus was there to proclaim was that he is the favor of God. That he has not come to patch up their old life. He's not come to reform their old life, to renew their old life. He's come to give them a brand new life. He is the new wine and the new wineskin. Yet they completely, completely missed the point. Jesus was saying he would not fit into the mold of man-made religion. 
What the people of Jesus' day needed to hear was that Jesus did not come to slap a patch on their existing system, but that he, was, he had come to be the new system itself. This is the entire thesis of the book of Hebrews, for instance. Jesus is better The people of Jesus' day needed to hear that, and most especially those who knew they were sinners. Because as the religious folks around them heap their laws on them, this is what you better do, this is what you better not do, and of course the list of what you better not do far exceeds the list of what you better do. Because you know, following God is a really sorrowful, mournful thing. That was the religious environment they lived in. But the reality is, friends, it's not different, is it? Religious people still do this. They still heap their rules on you. Don't drink, don't dance, don't date those who do. Don't, I messed it up. Don't smoke, don't chew, don't date those who do. I mean, I'm all for not, uh, I'm all for abstaining from tobacco and moderating alcohol intake. But does it really say that you're not going to go to heaven if you do that? Isn't it much bigger than that? Isn't it deeper than that? Isn't the reality that we are sinners and Jesus is the Savior? Period. So maybe you struggle with tobacco addiction. That doesn't bar you from heaven. You should work on it because it'll kill you. But God's not going to say... I smell cigarettes, get out of here, you sneaky little devil, you. Legalism simply does not do. All it does is heap a burden on people that they cannot carry. And it always comes out that the people who heap that burden, they don't carry it themselves. They're sleeping around, See Jerry Falwell Jr., for instance? The way of man simply doesn't work. Whether you call it Islam, or you call it Buddhism, or you call it Jesus is my homeboyism, I don't know. I might have made that one up. Whatever you call it, it simply doesn't work. But the great thing is, you don't have to try to work your way to God. Jesus' arms are open wide to all who would repent of their sins and trust him. He loves to save sinners. This is what he does. He has come to make all things new. And do you know where that starts? It starts with making sinners new, as we just saw today. And so, how do you see Jesus? Do you see him as an addition into your already busy agenda? Or do you see the reality that when you met Jesus, everything was different? You thought you had something going before, but then Jesus came. And he called you to himself. And you realize, whoa, I did not know life until now. 
How many people, this is my testimony, I know this is many of your testimonies too, how many people go to church every Sunday because Jesus is simply an addition to their already busy schedule? And how many of those people have never been made new, have never been born again? Is that you? Have you been made new? Because that is exactly what Jesus came to do. All things includes you, my friend. You. Right now, through faith in Jesus Christ, you could be given a brand new identity. And so I ask you, I beg you if I have to, come to Jesus. Come. Your way won't work, but his way does. Jesus is not to be squeezed into an already full schedule. He is the schedule itself. We don't fit Jesus into our lives. He is life itself. We must never think of Jesus as another agenda item for the day, but we must always make sure that our days revolve around Jesus. One commentator, James Edwards, says this as he reflects on this whole scene. He says, The question posed by the image of the wedding feast in the two Adam-like parables is not whether disciples will, like sewing a new patch on an old garment or refilling an old container, make room for Jesus in their already full agendas and lives, The question is whether they will forsake business as usual and join the wedding celebration. Whether they will become entirely new receptacles for the expanding fermentation of Jesus and the gospel in their lives. So I ask you, will you? We have set before us today the way of man and the way of God in Jesus Christ. The Pharisees relied on their own efforts and they piled on their own rules because gods were not enough as they taught people the way that they claimed led to God, the way that they claimed was true spirituality, was true godliness. Jesus, however, stands in complete contrast to this. While the Pharisees' way began with you, Jesus' way begins with God. While the way of man says, you must be meticulous in your obedience, the way of God says that he is gracious to save and forgive. The way of man says that it all depends upon you. The way of God says that it all depends upon Jesus Christ who has paved the way of God to God with his very own life. So I ask you then, will you take the way of man or the way of God? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your grace and your goodness. Thank you for the joy that you give to sinners like us. Thank you for the identity change that you have given to us. That while we are sinners, we are also saints. 
that you have set your love upon us, that you have completely reoriented everything about us. Reveal to us the deep truth of your grace and the love that you give. We pray, O God, that your joy would fill us completely and would be the constant theme of our lives even as we wrestle through trials, through the realities of our own sin, as we walk through a fallen world. We pray that your joy would mark our lives and that we would long for the day when we get to celebrate the wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb with you. And we pray, O God, that not only would we remember that you have in Christ made us new, but you would also put that message on our lips so that we would faithfully, beautifully, wonderfully proclaim that in Jesus all things are being made new. This we ask in his name. Amen.